Just a suggestion for the meeting tomorrow night. Could we reduce the price of the front row seats slightly? People seem to be having difficulty affording them. <laughs> right. Good to be here. Just a couple of quick comments before I get started. Um, jokingly, I said to Ewan when he gave me this passage, could I please have six weeks? Because there's no way that this little passage in the Bible can be fitted into one sermon. So he said no, and that's not a problem, because we'll just carry on and sort of link into the evening service and carry on from there. So that, that's fine, just relax, don't worry about the rest of the day, it's taken care of. As I go through a couple of things, there is a possibility that some people here may misunderstand what I'm trying to say. That's normal, it happens every time I speak. But specifically, when I speak later on about the Jewish nation and the Arab nations, I am not making any sort of political statement. Okay? My wife is Jewish. Her family is Jewish. My father was Jewish. My wife's sister's daughter is married to a converted Muslim from Iran who has an Iranian Muslim family that they visit regularly. So we have family links on both sides and we love them both. So please, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And I just want to get that clear because I know people can get hung up on silly things. All I'm doing is giving a bit of a factual rundown of what the Bible has to say and, and that's it. Okay. Now, we've been working our way through Galatians and Paul has been confronting the false teachings of the Judaizers. And Paul has been stressing that we are saved by faith and not by what we do. And then in verses 21 and 22 he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Now, in order to understand the rest of the passage, we need to understand what on earth Paul is talking about there. And if we don't know our Bible history, that verse is bizarre. So we're going to take just a couple of minutes to look back at the context which would have been very familiar to the readers at the time, but less familiar to those of us who live today. Okay. And just to try and avoid even further confusion, Abraham and Sarah's names changed. I'm going to be boring and stick with Abraham and Sarah and not chop and change because halfway through the story their names change. Okay, so just bear with me. There. Okay. To understand the background, we need to look back to, Gal to Genesis chapters 15 and 16 to an event that I think of personally as Abraham's great mistake. Now, let's be honest, we all make mistakes. I mean, I I've written a book, Mistakes That I've Made, and that, that was a silly thing to do. But even painters make mistakes. Builders, you try to get your car in and out of that one. <laughs> Engineers, somebody is in trouble. Not too sure who it is, but somebody is in trouble. They're supposed to meet in the middle. 
and how they are going to get their van out of that little situation, I have absolutely no idea at all. We all make mistakes, but mistakes have got consequences. And the mistake that Abraham made caused havoc then, and it is still, in many ways, causing havoc today, all these thousands of years later. To understand, back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, to you and your offspring I will give this land. Now, bear with me a second here. You can't have offspring unless you've got a kid. Okay, it kind of goes together. Okay, so God has said, you're going to have a child, and to your child I'm going to give this land, or as you reminded us, the whole cosmos, quite possibly. Okay. Years passed after this promise was made. In fact, about ten years passed. And by this time, Abraham was 86 years old, and his wife was 75. And she still hadn't had a child. And ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> It's kind of difficult at that age. It doesn't sort of happen automatically. And she's way past the age when women bear children. And in chapter 16, verses 2 of Genesis, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this here, but I think I'm kind of more or less accurate. Abraham is having a conversation with his wife and she says, Look, I know God said that we're going to have a baby, but that was a long time ago. For whatever reason, the Lord has kept me from having children, and now I'm too old to have them, and frankly, I'm sick and tired of sitting around getting older by the minute. While God is up in heaven doing absolutely nothing about our problem and his promise. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Apparently, God helps those who help themselves. I'm personally going to make sure that we have a child who can inherit. Now, hey, I can understand how she felt. They'd been waiting a long time and nothing happened. And in those days, if a family didn't have children, it was felt that they were cursed by God. She was confused, she was conflicted, she didn't understand. She was tired of waiting for God's promises to come through. Some of you may identify with that. Maybe you've been waiting a long time for something that God has promised you. Maybe you've been waiting on him for a better job or a better marriage or better health or a child or I don't know what. Maybe you've just been waiting on him for inner peace. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Now, now, I must be honest, I I am not a very good waiter. I'm really not. it's one of the areas where God is still working on me. And my, my prayer has often been kind of, Lord, grant me patience, but please hurry. <laughs> but one of the things God has been teaching me is that the things he has in store for us are worth waiting for. And his timing is right. We get impatient and frustrated, but we need to hang on. But that's not what Sarah did. In Genesis 16:2, she says, go Sleep with my maid servant Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed. And he slept with Hagar and she got pregnant. Now, when I first read this, and it's a long time back, but when I first read this, I said to myself, What? What a crazy family! Is Sarah nuts? 
Has she finally gone off the deep end? Maybe God hasn't given her a child because she's gone senile. Now, what's going on here? I mean, in, in our culture, what we call what Abraham did was adultery. But back then, it was culturally acceptable. I'm not saying it was right, I'm just saying it was culturally acceptable. Hagar was Sarah's property and she could make Hagar do anything she wanted her to do, including being a surrogate womb. And that's where the problem began. You see, the problem wasn't so much what Abraham and Sarah did. The problem was why they did it. They never said, Lord, is this what you want? Do you want us to take Hagar? Lord, do you want us to hang a bit longer? That's what they should have done. But instead Sarah said, Abraham, this is what we're going to do. And being the head of the house and a good husband and a normal man, he said, yes, dear. (laughs) And then in verse 4, we're told that once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah. What a surprise. She's a pawn in the whole situation. She's going through the trouble of having a baby and at the end of the day it won't even be hers. And she gets a little bit angry. And in verse 5, Sarah turns to Abram and says, this is all your fault. I let you sleep with my maidservant and now she hates me and you're responsible. If I was Abraham, I'd say, hey, what do you mean? My fault. This whole harebrained scheme was your idea and not mine. Why are you blaming me? I mean, isn't that typical human nature? We all blame everybody else. It's never my fault. It's always humans. Generally speaking, this is in the Baptist constitution. If anything goes wrong, it's the lead pastor's fault. And if in doubt, ask Matt. He'll confirm it. Okay. Abraham did that. Like most husbands, he didn't kind of like getting shouted at. So in verse 6 he says, hey, look, your servants in your hands do with her whatever you like. Leave me out of this. I wash my hands. And Sarah says, okay, my husband said I can do whatever I want to. I'm going to do exactly that. And I'm going to take out my frustrations on Hagar. And we read that she mistreated her. Now just a sort of in brackets comment. It's interesting that Sarah mistreated the Egyptian woman Hagar. And later on, the Egyptians mistreated the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. And the Hebrew word in both cases is the same word. Anyway, things didn't work out the way Sarah wanted. So she not only verbally abuses her husband, she physically abuses her maidservant. And Hagar says, hey, I can't live like this. And she runs away. And an angel of God appears to her and says, where are you going? She says, I'm running away. The angel says, go back. Submit to her. Now, again, if I was Hagar, I'd say, what, go back? She's mistreating me. She's making my life miserable. I'm not going to go back and put up with her garbage. But in verse 10, the angel says, if you go back, I will bless you so much that your descendants will be too numerous to count. The question we need to ask is, are God's blessings worth waiting for and going through a tough time for. Sarah and Abraham seemed to vote it with their feet and they said, no, we're going to sort it out ourselves. Hagar said, yes, it is worth it. If it means a better life for my son, if it means a better future, and if it means that I'll have a better relationship with God, I will do it. And she said in verse 13, sorry, 
You are the God who sees me. Basically, that means you are the God who sees who I really am. You are the God who sees everything that's going on in my life. And I will trust you and do what you've said and wait for your promise to come true. I suggest that if we want God's blessing on our lives, we better take Hagar's advice. God, may not make sense to me, but you are the God who sees me. You know what's going on. I'll trust you. And on that, I'd like to challenge us this morning. Don't go and make huge decisions without first bringing them to God. Don't make Abraham and Sarah's mistake. Don't take matters into your own hands. Trying to do God's work in our own strength is a recipe for disaster and failure. Problems always come when we try to do what only God can do. And the problems that arose from Abraham's mistake are still causing havoc in the world today and you can read about them in today's newspaper. I was listening to the results of those problems on the car radio as I drove here. That's how current it is. The papers call it the Middle East crisis. (laughs) I call it Abraham's great mistake. We could look at history of the Middle East. I'm not going to. We haven't got time. But basically, if we looked at the political history, we'd find the rise of Zionism, the creation of the nation of Israel, the Six-Day War, the Camp David Accord, the Intifada, the Oslo Agreement, the Second Oslo Agreement, the Second Intifada, we could go on and on. And on each of those, we could find a long political discussion and say, oh, this is what has caused the problem. But actually, that was not the cause of the problem. They were the results of the cause. And the cause was Abraham's mistake. You see, that mistake led to the birth of two half-brothers. Hagar had a child called Ishmael. Sarah eventually had the child of promise, miraculously called Isaac. In Islamic tradition, they consider Ishmael to be the ancestor of the Arab people. And Isaac was the father of the Jews. And the two separated at that point. Both sides claim ownership of the land. Both sides believe that God is on their side. Both sides claim and point to God's promises to them. And it all stemmed from Abraham's mistake. We we could say that Abraham suffered from a lack of faith, impatience or whatever, but the bottom line is he tried to do things and manipulate circumstances instead of leaving it to God. Now we come back to Galatians eventually. Paul says, Hagar's child Ishmael was born naturally. Yes, Abraham had sex with her, she felt pregnant and she had a child. Kind of the normal process. And he says, Sarah's child, Isaac, was born supernaturally. She was way past the age when she could have children. But God did something miraculous. And Paul tells us in Galatians that these two women, Sarah and Hagar, are actually an allegory or an illustration of two different ways of living for God. Now, we could spend another whole sermon on this whole question of allegory. Okay, it's it's caused debate for for a long, long time. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to opt out by taking the way the message version puts it, because I think that says what I'm trying to say. It says, 
This illustrates the very thing we are dealing with now. The two births represent two ways of being in relationship with God. It happened, it's historically true, and it's an illustration of two different ways of living for God. I like that. Hagar and Sarah represent two paradigms. One is natural, the other is supernatural. One is limited, the other is unlimited. One is work and do it. The other is trust God and let him do it. And you know, it's always easier. I know this for myself. It's easier to accept the natural. It's sad that most of us have to press pretty hard to stop trying and let God do it. Too often we choose the Ishmael solution to our problems, to our finances, to our bitterness, to our jealousy, to our unforgiveness, to our prejudice. And so you have what I'm going to call Ishmael Christianity and Isaac Christianity. Ishmael Christianity is ritual without spirit. It's doing the work. It's going through the motions. It's obeying the rules. It's trying to earn God's blessing. Ishmael Christianity doesn't transform you from the inside. It's natural, not supernatural. But Isaac Christianity is supernatural. Isaac Christianity is under the new covenant. Isaac Christianity holds promise. Isaac Christianity has the right of being an heir of God. Isaac Christianity is the one that God accepts. And that's what Paul's been saying right through Galatians. God knows what he's doing. You cannot earn his blessing. You need to start trusting in him and believing that he actually knows how to sort it out and when you come to him you come believing that he has paid the price for your sins you can't earn that salvation you trust in him do you want to know God's peace today? you can do you want to experience God's forgiveness today? you can how? What must you do? (laughs) You ain't been listening, have you? It's not what must you do, it's what God has done. I came across a wonderful quote from Philip Yancey, and we're going to finish in a couple of seconds, so you and you don't have to leave, it's okay. (laughs) Those of you who don't know Philip Yancey, you've missed out on life. But let me read it for those who can't see it from the back. Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross, knowing full well that the thief had converted out of plain fear. Knowing that the thief would never study the Bible, never attend synagogue or church, never make amends to those he had wronged, he simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised today you'll be with me in paradise. It was another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what you have done, but rather on what God has done for us. The choice is yours. Musicians.